Hey everybody, great to have you once again here on Unshakable. I appreciate you joining me for another episode of our discussion of this topic of Christian nationalism. And today we're talking about a subject that has always sort of vexed Americans and definitely confused Christians. We're talking about the issue of church and state. And let me start by making this obvious statement. The founders of our country, the founders of America, actually got it right. The church and the state have different goals and different approaches, and they should be kept separate. The church is designed primarily for the good, the spiritual good, of its members, although we do have a vested interest in seeing that our country is both prosperous and peaceful. And the state is primarily designed for the temporal well-being of its citizens, although it should, in a perfect world, it should also be interested in making sure that its citizens can freely worship and freely practice their religion. So in the very best of circumstances, you would have church and state both pursuing their very unique goals, but doing that in a way that is mutually beneficial to one another. Now, on the state's end, that doesn't always happen. Why? Hmm. Well, because of the fallen nature of man. And the fact is, this is just a brute fact of history. Men and women, when given the opportunity to grab hold of the reins of power and to control other people, they will do that. That is just the wickedness of man's heart. And because of that sinful bent, church and state should never be melded together into one. Listen, both theology and history tell us that that is a terrible idea that doesn't end well. So listen, we should not be pining away for some type of Christianized America or some type of Christian theocracy in this country. And this is one of the big reasons why I have differences of opinion with my brothers and sisters who are Christian nationalists. It's really not what we want. Now, if we step back, there are two main theories on this subject of church and state. One is called the establishment principle. The other is called the voluntary principle. Now, Christian nationalists would definitely say that we should be putting into effect the establishment principle. What does that mean? Well, it means the church becomes at the center of everything that happens in a society, in a nation. That means the church would be supported and defended, funded and promoted by the state and then governed as a godly commonwealth. That is what they would like to see happen. That is known as the establishment principle. And one of the things that would come with that would be the state upholding fundamental Christian behavior. The state would insist that everybody in society function in a biblical way, and they would have police power, state power, to enforce a legal code of biblical behavior. Now, stop and think about what that type of a society would look like. Is that what we really want? The other path to take would be the voluntary principle, and the primary feature of that way of seeing things is freedom of conscience. Now, as you know, freedom of conscience has been one of the hallmarks of Western society for centuries, and it has allowed the gospel to go forth into the nations and transcend national barriers and bear fruit. And that voluntary principle is the way we should want it to be, because nowhere, I know I've said this already in this series, I'll say it again, Nowhere in the New Testament do we see a mandate for Christ followers to go out and to try to grab hold of the power of civil government and then force people to violate their consciences by submitting to Christianity when they don't believe it. Now, some of you know the name John Locke. If you studied history or philosophy in college, you probably recognize that name. 
brilliant 17th century uh, philosopher from England who had a massive impact on the founders of America. Uh, much of his language ended up in the Declaration of Independence. And Locke argued in his day that both on biblical and philosophical grounds that Protestant nations should show love and tolerance and goodwill to all people even if they reject the gospel. In fact, Locke is on record saying this, I'll quote him, There is but one truth and one way to heaven, but we cannot lead people there by coercion. And this has been one of my points throughout this series. The weapons that we're supposed to be using in this fight for, uh, for God's law, this fight for divine truth, this fight for the gospel, they're to be spiritual weapons, not fleshly weapons. And to that end, take a look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10. Let's look at it. He writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So it's not our calling in Scripture to pick up fleshly weapons and to try to grab hold of the power of civil government for our own ends and our own purposes. That is just nowhere in the Bible. Now, obviously, a nation that goes down the path of the voluntary principle, even if it's filled with a lot of Christians, would have to tolerate what we know are false religions. But think about the alternative. Locke actually wrote about this. He feared giving power to the government to suppress things that were untrue with the concern that later on, if the power levers switched and people that had untrue beliefs took power, they could then turn around and suppress what is biblically true. And that's obviously correct. Whenever you give a government power, there's always the, the concern that the people taking power, taking office, could turn around and flip it back on you. So let's take a deep breath and let's really think practically now. Let's think downstream. If Christian nationalism were implemented in America, what would a Christianized America actually look like? So if our laws were adapted to a biblical code and we had state power, police power to enforce that code, for example, would we demand that every atheist and agnostic attend worship services? Would that have to be compulsory? Would America become a country then that declares Judaism illegal and Islam illegal? Would we uh, close down every synagogue and mosque and bulldoze them? Is that what we want to become? Would we have to become a nation that arrests and imprisons gay people or even couples, heterosexual couples who are sleeping together outside of marriage? Is that what we want to be? We would become the Christian version of Saudi Arabia with its Sharia law. Is that what we want to be? And more importantly, is that what the Bible calls us to be? No, of course not. And so we should want our nation to be guided by the voluntary principle where we don't go around enforcing biblical codes and then using police power to go after unrepentant sinners. That is not what we want. And by the way, just to raise another really practical question for those who are interested in a Christianized America, whose version of Christian truth should we be governed by? Because last time I checked, although Christians all share the essentials in common, there are so many differences on secondary issues, secondary non-essential issues. So whose vision of Christian America dominates? So, for example, what if the reins of power are grabbed by a particular tribe of Christianity who does pedo-baptism 
and now demands that every baby be baptized into the Christian faith, and I just don't share that conviction. Or what if those in power say, well, you have to practice the Lord's table, communion, in this particular way, but that doesn't line up with my conviction. Or they say, this is the only liturgy that you can use in your worship services, the only songs you can sing, and we just, we just have a disagreement over that. Can I disagree now if I'm living in this Christianized America that has a particular code? And listen, that, those are just disputes among believers who share much in common. Imagine being an unbeliever and having to live under this biblical code. Listen, let's make this plain. Given our understanding of human depravity and how easily men and women are corrupted, I don't want the state to have any power or authority over how we worship. I think that is the most logical, most common sense, and most biblical way to look at it. Listen, friends, as we wrap up, Scripture tells us that God is going to accomplish His sovereign purposes, His saving purposes, without the need for us co-opting government in order to assist Him. And followers of Christ should never have to use coercion or state power to enforce some type of Christian code or to force people to come under the Lordship of Christ. And I want you to think about this. If that were to happen, it would actually be a detriment to the cause of Christ because it would obscure the truth about Christianity. That would bring about nothing more than a cultural form of Christianity with a very thin and false veneer on the outside of what true Christian faith really is. And that can be very dangerous because it can give millions of people, literally millions of people, false assurance that they're truly saved, that they know the Lord Jesus Christ, when the fact is they don't. Okay, so we're out of time for today. This episode has been all about what we shouldn't be doing. Next week's episode, it'll be the last in the series, will be about what we should be doing. How can you and I influence this nation in a way that is biblically faithful and God-honoring? Until that time, have a great weekend of worship, remain unshakable, and love each other well. See you soon.